Hello, listeners. Welcome back to Recovery Talk, a podcast from the Peer Recovery Center of Excellence. I'm your host, Shannon Roberts. Each month, we'll be talking with an expert in the field, discussing substance use challenges, resources to assist individuals with a substance use challenge and or their families, and best practices for the delivery of peer recovery support services. This month, we are bringing you six new episodes. In late 2022, Tim Sobers, who leads our workforce development team, hosted a six-month skill development series for peer recovery support specialists. The training series provided recurring opportunities for peer recovery support specialists from across the country to build foundational skills that are necessary for effective peer support service provision. The series was so well attended and in demand that we also offered it in early 2023. In this podcast series, Tim sits down to have a conversation with each facilitator to have a deeper discussion with them about their presentation and what it means for the field. In this third episode of the series, Tim spoke with Sarah Davidow about developing skills as a professional. Sarah is a filmmaker, activist, advocate, author, and mother of two very busy kids. As a survivor of physical, sexual, and emotional abuse as a child and relationship violence as an adult, Sarah has faced many challenges throughout her own healing process, including many ups and downs with suicidal thoughts and self-injury. At present, she spends much of her time working as director of the Wildflower Alliance, formerly known as the Western Mass Recovery Learning Community, which includes a FIA peer respite, recently reorganized by the World Health Organization as one of about two dozen exemplary rights-based programs operating across the world. Without further ado, let's get talking. Hello, Sarah. I'm so happy to have the chance to speak to you. Hey, Tim. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And I was so excited to have you be a part of the skill development series that we ran. Um, the session that you covered was, it was titled Building Skills as Professionals. Um, and I knew that when I was putting this together that I wanted you to be the person to do this session because I've been, um, you know, just kind of a little backstory. I've been following your work for years, basically since I got into the field and have had the opportunity to work with Wildflower Alliance a couple of times. And I've just always been so appreciative of uh, the approach that you guys have taken. And so I really saw this as a great opportunity to kind of reframe what do we even mean when we're saying professional? Um, what does that mean? And what skills are considered to be professional? Um, and that's kind of where you started your presentation. So I'd love to have you just speak a little bit about kind of like, when we're saying the word professional, like what, what are we even talking about? Yeah. You know, it's interesting Tim. when I first got your request in email, I was like, professional, what is this? <laughs> it's like, what do I do with this? But once I understood what you were asking of me, I, I really got into it, you know, because I challenging that idea of what professional means and whether or not peer support is professional work, quote unquote, it's a really interesting conversation and not at all what I thought of when I first saw that title. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, I mean, I think part of what made it interesting to do was that question of just, you know, what historically does the term professional mean? And then what has it meant within the peer support context? And those are slightly different conversations. You know, one of them, the what is it meant historically? Well, typically what it's meant historically is white man in business suit, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's really important for us to recognize that. And so when I, when I started thinking about how would I construct this workshop, I thought immediately of this exercise we do in our three-day anti-oppression training, where I, I ask people to pull out 
their smartphones. You know, usually in trainings, you're asking people to desperately, like, just please just put them away. But <laughs> we take them out and we give them words and say, like, Google this, <laughs> you know, Google uh, baby clip art, hand clip art, all these things. And uh, at some point, we do ask, like, work clip art, and what do you see? And the conversations are really interesting, uh, particularly when we get to work clip art. It's mostly people who uh, appear to be men uh, and are sitting at desks. And when you do see someone who appears to be a woman show up, they're often like, they paint them with like six hands doing 10,000 things, but they're still smiling. And and then when you don't see a lot of non-white people until you get into things like construction and, and that and you and those aren't until way down on the page so that was kind of the standard and so when I first started thinking about how to construct this I thought about that and so I brought a little bit of that into these sessions just asking people to google professional and what do you see and those conversations were really interesting what people were seeing on their computer screens and helped us get at this idea of the history of that word the the oppressive history of that word and how that still shows up sometimes in like our employee handbooks, like professional dress required, like, okay, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, what does that mean where different cultures and genders and different experiences and different jobs uh, are considered? And so to start off on that note, I thought was really useful. And so I appreciated having those conversations with people in all the different places I've been able to have them. And then, you know, it becomes this question about like, well, what does that mean when peer support was born out of like the psychiatric survivor work and all this other work that has come before us and is continuing in its different ways? What does it mean to professionalize something? I think that's a really complicated conversation. Uh, in some ways, I reject that idea of being called a professional peer, especially, well, there's a whole nother issue of being called a peer, quote unquote, but uh, because in some ways we are alternatives to that professionalized, industrialized system. And I think that's important. And I think there's been a lot of power taken out of our movements because people who used to fight, who used to feel comfortable advocating and pushing their livelihood is now dependent on the systems they're trying to change. And so that has really shifted things. And that runs in concert with this idea of professionalism. But on the other hand, I think many of us are so much more skillful <laughs> at doing some of the actual work with people than folks who have all the degrees and do put on the suits and sit at desks and all that. All that. And, and I don't want to lose that. So some of it becomes this conversation of like, how do we recognize our value without giving up who we are and our history and our ability to, to push for change and speak our truth within the context of this idea of professionalism? Mm -hmm. That was a lot of words. I can answer your question. but <laughs> No, it's really important context. And that that's, you know, I remember in that first email, I was specifically like, I don't want to talk about notes. I don't want to talk about writing emails. I don't want to talk about like, you know, the, we're going to call it skill building, but we're going to really go into this kind of like larger macro scale conversation. Because I think that for a lot of the folks who get into the field these days, that context of where peer support starts has been lost uh, because of the way that training and certification is presented. Um, and so they're coming in thinking, and I, I will own that that was my understanding when I first got into peer support, was that the only iteration of peer support that had ever existed was 
the training and certification and then you go work at a social services organization and and you work your way up through you know the career ladder and it was just a profession to me like anything else and i had to grow and learn and and become educated about the history. And so I really wanted to start with that context. And I am so appreciative of the way that you handled it and folks and their willingness to lean in, in the spaces to pick apart. Like, you know, there was a lot of conversation about as a workforce, what does it mean to be professional? But then also the individual people talking about, you know, their understanding and the level of importance that they place internally to be seen as professional because it comes with, you know, societal connotations of like being good at something being recognized and respected you know making sometimes a certain amount of money um, and people felt a lot of attachment to those things um and so kind of pulling apart like but is that in line with the movement is that in line with the history was really really interesting um and i think people really had a lot of different thoughts um in the spaces that you uh provided to kind of chime in about those things yeah definitely not necessarily <laughs> Everyone was not on the same page necessarily. I think there were some folks who really, I felt, oh, you know, I could really sit down and have a long conversation with this person about this and and have some really interesting dialogue about the history. And there were some people who were just like looking at me, like, what are you talking about? (laughs) And uh, I remember, you know, someone had asked me something. we, We had gotten to some questions like, you know, if you're professional, do you share some of your personal struggles that might be happening now. And I think so many people in peer support roles have been trained. If you're going to be a professional in a paid role, you can say things like once upon a time, I had a hard time and now I'm in recovery and you can do it too. <laughs> That's sort yeah. of like it. But the idea that I could say right now, Hey, this is what I'm going through, but I'm still figuring out how to have a life is much more foreign to people. And I remember someone giving me like a really, like really look when I just decided right in the middle of that training to share some of what I'm struggling now and how, yeah, I may very well share that sharing it with you now in my training work. And I might share that with someone that I'm supporting because this idea that, you know, quote unquote recovery means we've moved on (laughs) from Mm -hmm. struggle. Like now we're some sort of, we we were broken humans and now we're superhumans. Like we either have all the problems or none of the problems uh, is weird. And it gets in the way of people seeing themselves have full lives. Yeah. I've had a very similar experience. There's a story that I share a lot about how I did intensive outpatient treatment while I was still working and providing peer support services. So I would work from nine to noon on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then from one to four, I would go and do treatment. And I told everybody that I was providing services to that I was like, I can't see you on these days at these times for the next couple of weeks because I got to go do treatment at this hospital that is just down the road from where you live. (laughs) So uh, that's where I'm going to be. And every time that I tell that story, I always get the the face reactions that are like, what are you talking about? Like, why would you ever share that? You know, you should have had your certification suspended because you weren't doing well enough to be a peer specialist. And it's such an interesting conversation of how you know, this idea of professionalism, I think, has long been looked at as kind of a doorway into growth and the ability to have a, a career and to make more money. Um, and there's not always enough critical exploration of what gets lost when we say that, how much professionalism kind of constricts us as a workforce from from talking about things like struggle and from showing up as our authentic selves if we don't meet that kind of specific idea of what professionalism actually is. Yeah. And, and that gets micromanaged for us as a product of psychiatric oppression, but it impacts everybody, this weird idea. You know, so when we do our alternatives to suicide trainings, 
inevitably at some point, because people are freaked out by this idea of people who've been suicidal, facilitating groups for people who are suicidal, like that's scary to people. Uh, so someone will ask at some point in a lot of those trains, well, how many people who've been involved with alternatives to suicide have died by suicide? And what I get to say to them is actually, there's been over more than a decade you know, about a handful of people, like as many fingers as I have on this hand that I am aware of. And we are aware a lot of people because they become communities. However, uh, you know, two of them were clinicians. Mm. Two of them were working as clinicians who felt they could never take that mask off in their professional work because they couldn't be the one with the problem. And so this space became the only place they could take that mask off. And at the same time, they also had to deal with the fact that sometimes their mask on professional world was asking them to do things to other people who had similar struggles that were harmful and that they knew were harmful from their own experience and they couldn't own that out loud. And then they moved away to areas where those groups weren't available. And and we learned that that's how they died. And I'm not trying to say here, oh, it was just because they didn't have this group to go to. But I think it's important for us to know that this professional, this problem of professionalism that impacts peer support, it impacts and harms all of us because mm-hmm. it sort of paints this picture of, of the the professionals at the hospitals and in the social service organizations as the people who've never had a problem, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or at least can't ever admit to it. And that causes so much harm too. Yeah. Uh, something that I thought was really interesting in this space was um, how people talked about code switching and the language that they use when they're working um, and how it was like, okay, to use peer language up to a point, but when I'm in this space, then I should be using clinical language and talking about diagnoses. And that really kind of resonated with me like the wrong way of being like what (laughs) it just didn't make any sense to me but i think it's interesting how people kind of find spaces where they're more or less comfortable kind of compromising in order to be viewed as competent in the work that they're doing and how that impacts then you know who's coming after them and the expectations of the rest of the workforce yeah and i love i love language conversations i just did a training on language last week i i love to do those conversations and ha- or do those trainings and have those conversations because yeah even even if i can't get someone to change to how i think they should be make way fewer of those compromises I think it's so important that we're talking about it and people become aware that it's a compromise. Sometimes it's just so automatic, you know, because if people have how they've been trained to be in these environments or survive in these environments, that they're doing that at an unconscious level. And at the very least, it needs to become a conscious decision that they're making. They need to become aware of that. And hopefully that is a pathway to making a lot less compromises because all the arguments that people make about why we should comply with our language, so to speak, is they, they all strike me as really harmful. And they all strike me as, you know, the same sorts of arguments that get made in, in all forms of marginalization, like, the, you know, um, like, don't be the language police, and people will be uncomfortable, they'll be so uncomfortable, they won't know how to speak. That's not been my experience. <laughs> In general, I, uh, there's some people I wish they were, you know, maybe a little more uncomfortable and spoke a little less, but it doesn't seem to happen. But they use those things to shut down the conversation. And uh, whether we're talking about, 
you know, race or genders, all sorts of things. People, people get that sort of fragility kind of place and it happens here too. But what I think people miss most in this conversation about the psychiatric system is in every state that I look, when I look at age demographics, I see sort of, you know, the age demographic in the twenties is, you know, sort of notable, but not super high. And then it goes up to like in the thirties, forties, and, you know, early fifties, it sort of piles up to this really high number in all the mental health systems. And then there's this massive drop off when you get into later fifties and sixties, et cetera. And people sometimes think that's just an age demographic chart, but it tells a story. And it's a story of people entering the system and never getting out, piling up and then dying or going to nursing homes. And I see that everywhere we go. I don't think, at least in this country, that the that story isn't pretty consistent and language and these ideas we have about professionalism and needing to carry forward that language have an impact. I don't know how in our peer roles, if we're referring to people as clients and the mentally ill and like all these, these things that get put on us, how we can do that at the same time that we say that our goal is to support people to see themselves beyond the system, to see themselves moving beyond that life. We're literally inextricably tying their identities <laughs> to a system and then saying, oh, but there's possibility to get out. <laughs> you know, and, and that's that's not really how it plays out a lot of the time. So that people get so stuck in that, in their efforts to be professional or be accepted and valued in that role. Um, it's painful to watch. Yeah. And I see how it impacts people kind of lo- losing themselves into the assimilation of existing systems. And then thinking that, you know, I'm making radical change when, when all you're doing is replicating these existing systems and the harms that we've seen happening for years. Um, and I really think about it as well in the context um, of uh you know the workforce kind of i'm hesitant to use the phrase so i'm going to say the quote-unquote workforce shortage that we hear a lot about how there's uh kind of a big focus on like we need to diversify the workforce we need to bring in all these folks from historically marginalized communities so they can provide services to historically marginalized communities but we're not going to do anything differently and we're going to hold them to the same standards of whiteness and power and privilege that have always existed and if they can't do those things then they're not good at their jobs and i think about how that gets replicated and internalized by folks from those communities when they want to be in these systems. And then sometimes they replicate the systems of harm themselves. Um, and just how it's such a missed opportunity for us to do something radically different um, and for systems and folks within positions of power to say, like, maybe we do want a more diverse workforce, but then we need to do some internal systemic reflection um, if we actually want that to happen. Yeah, you know, I I have said so many times in the state where I am in Massachusetts, I get it. I agree with it to a point that we want people offering the supports and taking part in this movement to be reflective of the people receiving the supports. <laughs> and when people ask me to participate actively in the recruitment of people from those marginalized communities, like, why would I try and convince someone who has experienced like huge amounts of discrimination, racism, what have you? Why would I work really hard to try and convince them to come into some of the lowest paid, least respected jobs in the States? <laughs> like, 
is that really what we want to do? Like, I get it. I get the reason and I don't disagree with it, but I feel kind of complicit in tricking people into further marginalizing themselves. And I think something substantial needs to change before that feels okay to me. Yeah, I completely agree. And I'm going to own that I have historically in the past have participated kind of in depth in those recruitment efforts. And at the time really thought like, oh, this is really what we need to do. And as more time has passed, I've looked back and been like, ah, I probably could have handled that a little bit differently <laughs> than what we chose to do. Um, but I think also too, within the context of you know professionalism, it's like we need more people certified. We need more uh, people of color of historically marginalized communities uh, as clinicians, as therapists, as social workers. Um, and we lose the opportunity to, to, to look beyond like, but what about what's happening outside of this, you know, quote unquote, professionalized system that these communities are already doing that we could be validating and supporting? And how do we push past this idea of professionalism to recognize, you know, what already exists that maybe looks different than what we've decided things are supposed to look like? Yeah, absolutely. And that that conversation comes up for me all the time whenever I get pulled into conversations about person-centered care, for example. Uh, I know person or patient-centered, sometimes it's called. And I'm actually going to be in June on a panel talking about person-centered care. And and one of the things I want to say there that I've said in a number of places too is, all right, you know, all these systems and all these new approaches, this way of, you know, making things more person-centered, they're still focused on how do we get people to this table? It's like, how do we pull someone in? Like, yay, we trans we translated the same medicalized nonsense into Spanish. And now, now the same message can go out to people who don't speak English. Fabulous. Except that it completely is still devoid of any relevant cultural input or like the supports that are actually meaningful to people who just have different backgrounds and experiences. You know, in some ways, you know, I'm I'm white. I came from a very sort of white uh, area in Connecticut. And so, you know, I'm, I don't have this culture to lean back on that has got these other ways of approaching things. I really kind of felt, you know, I, I know I have tons of privilege as a result and tons of loss as a result of not having that kind of community and that culture. And why would we want to rip more people out of that if they have it? So figuring out ways, you know, I absolutely agree. And evidence-based practice also is that to be a professional, you must practice with evidence-based practice. And that's another approach that does basically the same thing. You know, research tells us it's mostly white researchers looking at mostly white people that they're studying and coming out with what's evidence-based practice. And it's used to discount and not fund cultural practices that have been around for hundreds of years. And we're really missing the mark there. Yeah. And I remember being in a a training where they were presenting this uh, brand new clinical treatment for eating disorders. They were talking about how this is going to work for all these different communities and everybody should be implementing it. And so I finally asked them, like, who was your study group? You know, can you talk about the demographics of who participated, where you were? And it was all upper middle class white women who were middle aged. And so I was asking them, like, then how can you say this is going to work for everybody? How could you possibly say that this practice is going to work for a black trans woman? Like you, you haven't, that doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, but we're expected to compromise and accept that as, as a professionalized opinion that we should just, you know, be a part of. 
Yeah. And I think uh, one of the studies that has always stuck with me too, is there's studies about indigenous communities and all the clinical professional support that got poured into these clinical or these indigenous communities that had these high suicide rates really didn't shift the needle at all on the suicide rates themselves. And what did was supporting these indigenous communities to connect with culture, uh, to live in communities where more than half of the people there spoke the native language and were engaged in cultural practices because, because the quote unquote treatment was purpose and meaning and connection to culture and and a reason for existing. It wasn't this practice that someone decided by looking at this really isolated group. Yeah. And I think that that's something that gets so lost in peer support. The more that it gets professionalized is that, you know, the, the more that I talk about how the point of peer support is to build relationships, to build human connection, to be in shared space, to support somebody building a life that has meaning and value to them as determined by them the more that I see people look back at me and say, like, it's not my job to do a recovery plan. What do you mean? I'm not supposed to be doing, you know, a treatment plan and and raising this person's, you know, recovery capital score. That's not my job. And I'm like, no, (laughs) no, that's what professionalized systemic peer support looks like. But peer support at its core is so different. And it could be all the things that you're just talking about. You know, if, if as a workforce, we, we're able to lean in and kind of legitimize ourselves, you know, to your point, I think you talked about this a little bit earlier, but like, you know, how do we kind of reclaim some of that power to be like, no, we don't necessarily need to adhere to these standards of professionalism. We have our own standards and understanding of what our services look like. um, And we're going to stick and stay true to them. Yeah. You know, you just reminded me, we have a, a film that I've been saying for a long time is coming out and it really is coming out soon, but we've been working on it for a long time. And, there's someone from SAMHSA, or she's retired now, but she's a SAMHSA employee who's in the film. And uh, the way the film is set up, there's three groups. There's group one, who are people who've been in the system and receive services voluntarily or otherwise. Uh, group two are people who work in the system in, in leadership or direct support roles. And then group three was like a CEO of a hospital, a medical director for the State Department of Mental Health, the SAMHSA person. Her name is Catherine. And I remember at some point after listening to a lot of people talk about peer support and meaning, et cetera, in other groups, because we would video each group separately and then show parts of the videos to the other groups and then tape them responding or video them responding. And she said, you know, we are the only system that is expected to not only do these, you know, planning goals, et cetera, kinds of things, but also to help engender meaning in people's lives. And (laughs) her point was that that was unfair or not right somehow and couldn't be expected. But I'm like, well, no, that's like the entire point. (laughs) It's like, how do you, it's, you know, it really roots back to this idea of there's just something wrong with our brain. And you can just fix something, that thing wrong in our brain. Well, then we can go figure out the meaning and everything else for ourselves, and all the culture and the things that have happened to us stripped away. And and if people in peer support roles aren't at least hanging on to that, then who is, you know? So I'm really curious to hear your thoughts kind of pivoting a little bit. Um, but I know one of the reasons that we heard, you know, people talk about really valuing being seen as a professional was that ability to, um, you know, be compensated 
more, quote unquote, um, to potentially advance in their career, you know, to build, to build a career at all, um, would require them to be seen as professional and to participate in those systems. And so I'm, I'm really interested to hear your thoughts. Um, you know, if we're kind of pushing through or past this idea of professionalism, how do we also still support people who do want to build a career or have some sort of longevity in the peer support field? That's a tough question because <laughs> the the field as it exists right now is tough, uh, both in regards to opportunities for advancements, people valuing having people in, in really senior roles that are still coming from the peer support, peer-to-peer perspective, and any number of other pieces. And some of it requires the redefining and letting go of the degrees piece. You know, we still are seeing, or at least I'm still seeing lots of people who are in peer roles who are really skillful, but know that in order to advance, they must go get their master's and follow a different mm-hmm. path. And so I think I think there's a lot of things we need to remember and uh you know one one of the things i i think back to as far as the degrees piece is i was on a panel for the drug policy alliance which and i i love that organization i don't know how much experience you have with them but they travel in the harm reduction circles and they had specifically an anti-coercion conference and i remember being on a panel with, I think there was a licensed nurse and there was a psychologist. I think they were on either side of me. And I I know there was a fourth person who also had an advanced degree. And I remember someone from the audience saying, hey, I'm a college dropout, but I really want to do what I hear you all talking about. Is there a way in for me? And the psychologist to my left, I think, uh, said, you could volunteer. We have volunteers who, you know, they, they help with lunch. And I forget all the details of what she said, but I'm like, after she stopped talking, I was like, yeah, I don't have a GED. I don't have any degrees. Like I've, I've dropped out of everything. I've started, but not finished a darn thing. And, and I know I've also got some privilege here, but please, like, that's not the message that we should be giving to people that it's hopeless and you can volunteer and be uncompensated. Like, you know, have to mediate that with some reality of like, yeah, our systems are still set up in the way that they're set up, but uh, we have got to push through that and support one another to push through that. And so, you know, the organization I'm in, we specifically don't look at degrees at all ever. And in fact, our internal conversation is, uh, you know, if you have a degree, you might actually have more work and you might be more work for us because you have a lot of unlearning to do (laughs) and unlearning is harder than learning. So I'm hoping that by pushing on those things that we can be a part of that change. But I also think that, you know, the, somehow we have to also get through to people that this peer support role is special and there's not an endless pool of people mm-hmm. i think sometimes it gets treated and i i say this with some caution because i i also worked in the residential world in the more clinical world and i don't want to devalue the people who are working in that realm they also deserve to be get to be getting paid what they're worth but i knew living in a college area that there was kind of an endless stream of young college 
kids who would be willing to work overnights and do whatever they were doing and just come through and then they'd pass on and we'd get another and that wasn't a big deal. The pool for people in peer support roles is much smaller because they have to be A, people who have that experience, B, people who are willing to talk about that experience all the time, and three, want to do this work, and four, be good at it. And that's actually kind of special. There's, I I won't say it's rare, but it's special. And if you're not willing to compensate people who do fit that relatively special niche, then you're going to lose them. Like why they don't deserve to not be able to live their lives. They don't need to continue to be marginalized. They likely have other things they could be doing. And so I know that's not an answer or a fix, but it's a conversation that I try to have everywhere I go, as well as I think some of it's on us as a movement. Uh, You know, surely we do not have the power to change everything, but I see people in our own movement undercut themselves and undercut their own power a lot of the time by saying, oh, they won't fund this grant. They won't fund us. They won't do X, Y, Z if we don't make these concessions, including starting people at pretty low pay rates and proving that we cost less. And uh, I think that's really you know, it, once you get something put in place, I think we always need to remember, once you get something put in place, it's way harder to change it than to get it started in the right way. And I think we also need to remember in the evidence that we use. Um, you know, I did a peer respite conversation or a presentation last week. And one of the things I said is like, yeah, hey, this data on us uh, using peer supports leading to less psychiatric facility inpatient stays uh, is valuable. And the fact that we cost less than inpatient psychiatric facility stays is valuable. We don't need to throw it out, but we need to not use it as the center of every single conversation because A, having a psychiatric stay, like a stay in a psychiatric facility one time a year uh versus being so drugged out of your mind that you can't get off your couch and live a life so that you don't end up in a psychiatric facility isn't necessarily <laughs> like, you know that's those two things are not equal i think there's a lot of people who'd rather go live a full life even if it means sometimes things feel a little too chaotic and they end up impatient i'm not saying that's the goal either but i'm saying like mm, better than being so drugged out all you can do is sit on your couch uh but also let's not sell ourselves as only being a cost saver because we are undercutting our ability to make the argument that we really need money to value people properly. So I think if we put all those pieces together, the arguments are there, but too few of us are making them. Yes, I completely agree. I think I actually said it as, but one of the other podcasts in this series, how frustrating it is to me to hear the cost saving portion of peer support as like the, such a selling point. Um, because to me, I'm like, this system exists to serve me. I am not existing to save it money. That doesn't make any sense at all. Um, and so just to see that as a selling point, to see so much research focused on that. I think it is, you know, beneficial in terms of expanding peer support services, but it's such a detriment when that's how we're viewed as, as a cost saving alternative instead of a really reputable clinical, uh, non-clinical alternative 
to existing systems, you know, that has its own merit and value and benefits, um, the same way that some of these other systems do to people who find value in them. Yeah, like what if it cost exactly the same, but it was just more humane and effective? <laughs> like- right. Would you still want it? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> so yeah, that's a, that piece really, really frustrates me. I understand why we talk about it so much, but uh, to your point, I think that it's baby centered a little bit too frequently. Uh, but uh, yeah, so when it comes to kind of uh, you know career development, I, I appreciate what you're talking about with the degree piece as as somebody who, you know, has gotten where I am with a high school diploma and a peer certification. Um, and, and what I think, you know, I, I want to name here too, is that like there, we as a workforce and as a community can hold each other maybe a little bit better. You know, the only reason that I applied for this job is because somebody told me that I should. And the only reason I applied for the job before is because the community was saying, we think you can do this. Um, and without that, I wouldn't have applied because there were degree requirements in place. Uh, and, and even for this position, there was, I think, a minimum amount of time you had to have spent in like state or national level programs and did not meet that requirement. Um, but I had people reaching out being like, you should do it. And so I did. And I would love to see us as a workforce, you know, working to encourage each other to take those risks, to take those chances a little bit more than we do because working in workforce development, it's one of the things that I hear so frequently is that people will say like, oh, well, I didn't apply for that job or for that promotion because I didn't meet the educational professional requirements. So I just didn't go for it at all. Um, and I wish people would, you know, we could support each other a little bit more and, and push you to think like, oh, it's, well, you know, the worst that happens is they don't get it. Uh, but at least I put my name, you know, I put my hat in the ring. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think that that happens a lot more than people realize that someone, I mean, we're asking these systems to know what they should be hiring, who they should be hiring when they don't really understand our work at all. Mm-hmm. And so if we don't support each other to to take chances and kind of ask those employers to stretch, then then they won't. <laughs> you know? and, and some of the best people for the job will end up in them. I so often am relying more on the spark and the ideas and the energy of somebody that's coming to a job, at least where I work, than I am on anything that's on paper. And uh, I think a lot of employers might not know that they want to do that, but, but they discover it when they meet the right person in those interviews. So absolutely. And I, yeah, I think uh, as, as you're talking, I'm thinking like, Oh, like I should edit some of my material to make that point really clear too. I'm curious, you know, to pivot again, I'm really interested to hear your thoughts as we talk about professionalization and the growth of the workforce and how we're viewed within the context of systems and what people look to as validation. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, you know, the certifications that exist and and kind of the impact that they, I know it's a very loaded question, (laughs) (laughs) you know, they supported professionalization in a variety of different ways and they come with, you know, many benefits and, and then many drawbacks and, I'm just interested to hear your thoughts on kind of how they fit into this dialogue about professionalism and peer support. So, all right. I think it's so complicated. I know, you know, it's so complicated. (laughs) I think if there could be trainings, certifications that were driven by people who had been supported to unpack 
all the oppression we've experienced and the like, what is this work really about? If, if they were all created by those people who had had that time and access to unpack all of that and then offer it to others as a way to unpack some of the internalized oppression and some of the things that we really do want to, to build our skills around that, then I think it could have potential. And I think some of them have some elements of that, (laughs) but a lot of them are created by clinical people or are created by clinical people who say, Hey, we need someone with lived experience to be on our team. And they're like, pluck someone out and not give them any support to unpack whatever else they've internalized because they're not really able to give that support anyway. And say, look, it wasn't just us. It was someone with a psychiatric diagnosis helped us create this. That's what they do with mental health first aid. Mental health first aid is an interesting animal, different, I know, but they, they will say, there was somebody with lived experience. We won't say who it was for their privacy, but there was someone with lived experience who helped us create this. I'm like, all right. Uh, But yeah, so I think that a lot of them are regurgitations of, they really fit that mini clinician. We are training you to be a mini clinician, a lower paid, (laughs) less, less trusted mini clinician. And that's how the curriculums are designed. And in that way, those versions of those certifications perpetuates all of the worst parts of professionalism that we are talking about. They really just train people to fit in, be quiet, don't challenge, do the the very stereotypical sort of idea of what peer support is supposed to be. And so I think in that regard, they become a tool of oppression uh, in the name of professionalization. Now, I did participate on one of those teams for several years. And I could feel good about that only because we were a team strictly of people who had psychiatric histories. And we had the power, at least for some of the time in there, to unpack the material and really challenge it in ways that did feel good about uh, good to me. And so I felt like in that realm, uh, I was able to offer people who are entering provider systems the opportunity to hear from people who've done some of that unpacking and get supported to do that before they're dropped into a provider environment. And that felt positive to me a lot of the time. But honestly, you know, there's that difference between change and systems change. When change, when it's only dependent on a particular group of people or individual who's there, uh, that will drift away. And systems change, of course, is more embedded in the structures. And so it gets held regardless of who the people are. That that particular training, the way it was structured, was a product of change and not systems change. Mm-hmm. So when the leadership started to change, what happened is a couple of us who were starting to become aware that sometimes trainers were saying things that were really questionable around race and gender and all sorts of other things. We started to challenge, we got pushed out and that training went on its own track. And I think is something fairly different at this point. So uh, yeah, I don't know that I'm entirely answering your question, but I, I think, I think when professionalism gets attached to certifications that are created by the accepted professionals or, or, you know, by people who are being tokenized for their psychiatric histories without really being able to fully realize and unpack what they could be bringing, then you end up with something that just 
goes back to all the stuff we were saying before about the harms and the type of professionalized peer support that we really don't want to land with. Yeah. Yeah, I think that makes perfect sense. I mean, this conversation on certification, I think, is also one that as a workforce, you know, we need to be engaging in consistent self-inquiry, consistent self-critique of like, where are we coming from? What are we doing? What are we saying? What are we valuing? What are we placing value onto? And what standard are we holding each other to? Um, and I think that there's space for, you know, inquiry and critique into these certifications. Uh, you know, they're not above revisiting, um, particularly when we talk about how, you know, the peer workforce is, is growing so exponentially, so quickly into all of these different systems and all these different places. Um, you know, how are people understanding and interpreting and implementing what they've learned in the certification spaces? Yeah, and I think uh, this also gets really attached to the Medicaid reimbursement piece, yeah. <laughs> you know, which is a whole nother tricky argument. But I think that both the Medicaid reimbursement piece and the certification piece, they get centered in this version of peer support that is, again, about like you have an illness, you have something wrong in your brain and are devoid of this piece of like, what is it like to exist in the society with a psychiatric history or other similar kind of struggle and lose all your power? And those trainings, most of them aren't talking about that and they aren't centered around that. And I think you know, that's kind of, for me, the potential death of peer support is if we allow it to become completely disconnected from the profound loss of power that happens to people who are in these systems. Mm -hmm. I, uh, you know, kind of in that context of, of the certifications, I really think it's interesting, you know, part of conversations that I've been having more, uh, more frequently is like, there are so many opportunities to build meaningful careers that are not dependent on the certifications. Like I know a lot of respites that do really exceptional work that don't require people to be certified or warm line hotline work when it's done really well, some recovery community organizations. Like, there are so many opportunities for us to look beyond um, just this specifically certified Medicaid billable peer support um, that I think as a workforce, we're not really exploring deeply enough. Like, what are my other options here? Um, and I want to name that I know, uh, because anytime that I say this, somebody will always tell me, so I'm going to name it now. I know that the certifications do not exist just to build Medicaid. They exist for a variety of reasons. Um, however, that's kind of the biggest benefit that we hear from most people. Um, but I would, I would love to hear, you know, if you have a, you know, an example or two of like spaces where people have built really, you know, exciting careers that are, you know, outside of these existing systems or outside of these kind of established ideas of professionalism that we've been talking about. Yeah, well, I mean, the easiest thing for me to do is refer back to, to the work I'm doing with Wildflower Alliance. Yeah. And we stopped putting people through the certification, uh, the state certification years ago for a number of reasons. And honestly, even when we are putting them through the state certification, most of the time, the main benefit we heard from people coming back was that they got a better understanding of how uh, co-opted peer support is in a lot of <laughs> organizations. That was kind of the main benefit. And that was useful for them to be aware of. Uh, but here we have our own, we do, I mean, we do have trainings we ask people to go through, but we have 
the say and what they are. They're not based in any sort of billing. They're based in things like supporting people to unpack their experiences and make their own meaning, all the things that are consistent with our values. And I really appreciate that. And I've seen people who we have a high number of people on our team who started by coming and getting support in some way, you know, whether it's a training or coming to a center or going to our peer respite or what have you, and then have grown through that into these other roles. And so, you know, I have one coworker who started just by going to a hearing voices group and now shares very openly that that was her beginning, but now she's traveling traveling internationally as a trainer. And there's no requirement for certification in that. What's valued is her experience and not just her experience of what was going on for her, you know, removed from environments, but her experience with hearing voices and navigating systems and navigating families and seeking out supports and building to this point in her career. All of that is so valuable. You know, I think of another coworker who started by coming and working one of those sort of per diem roles at our peer respite when it first opened. And now he's moved over the years through that role into being the director of that peer respite. And now we're really working together with one of the local disability uh, justice attorneys groups in the area to push through legislation for more peer respites. And we're hoping to start the first LGBTQIA plus peer respite in the world. So that's something he's heading up. So, and he's never, you know, he's not in a job that has ever required a certification. He's also a trainer with us. So, you know, I think when I think of those examples, and obviously they're close to me and I'm a little biased, but I think those are really powerful examples of creating spaces where it's truly people's experiences and their passions that drive how things move forward. And the idea that someone needs to be certified in something in particular is you know, just kind of out the window. And certainly there's no degrees or anything like that involved as well. And I know that there's other places, you know, I think um, I'm forgetting a little bit. Uh, I forget what this acronym, I hate offering acronyms when I can't, recall what they stand for, but Ida in New York, uh, Institute okay. of something. For the development of human arts. Human arts. There we go. A new institute <laughs> and a new arts. Thank you for helping me <laughs> fill in the gaps. So uh, certainly they are geared more towards people who have professional degrees and different sorts of learning, but they've pulled in people who have all different experiences with no regard to what degree they have or certification they have to offer these really interesting opportunities for learning. And those opportunities for learning are being intended not just by people in peer roles, but by clinicians who have degrees who are recognizing, I don't have actually what I need from these degrees. And so it's really shifted. And they've done a great job of shifting the building of curriculum by people who have experiences, including very different cultural experiences that they're bringing to the table and sharing. Uh, with others. And so I think of them also as doing something quite outside this very conventional way of thinking. And I know there's other examples, but those come to mind first. Yeah. Yeah. I've I've been to a number of IDA trainings and have definitely found them to be exceptional. I know um, for me personally, I'm uh, about to move out of state and be in a different state and be traveling for about a year. And my certification is going to expire, my Wisconsin one. And I have not been not certified since I got in the field. And I'm like, 
oh, the level of anxiety has been pretty high. And I've been doing some reflection about like, why? Like what? I don't even use it for anything because I don't do direct service work anymore. But I'm like, oh, but it has that like, that like professional meaning and recognition of I get to, you know, I get to put the letters in my email if I want. Like I get to show up and be like, I am certified, you know, and that has meaning and weight in the workforce. And so I'm, I'm, I'm just interested to see how it feels once that lapses next year, uh, because I'm no longer in the state and not going to transfer it. Uh, and, and like, just really reflecting on like, how, how much value am I placing onto this thing that, that I, I don't even use anymore? <laughs> it is interesting. And, you know, sometimes I do, I said, I don't even have a GED. I do have a CPS if I wanted to attach it, you know, as, as you were saying, but it's interesting too, like what we've kind of been tricked into in the name of professionalism of, of doing it's, I'm somebody who, if I'm speaking to a doctor, I refuse to participate in that. Like, Oh, Dr. Smith, I'm Sarah. You know, it's like I, that, that weird power imbalance that comes just in offering honorifics or I tend to, you know, I try to be sensitive to other people's preferences but when someone sends me a bio that has all their like degree letters i tend to just like filter them out and make them even with everybody else because it is also kind of in the name of professionalism been tricked also into participating in power imbalances mm-hmm. that have in many instances harmed us you know I've, I've worked with a lot of people who said i went to my treatment planning meeting everyone else had their degrees and i had my diagnosis <laughs> how did we get there so yeah it's so interesting the certification and especially when it gets used in that way to sort of elevate but i get why people do it too because it's often people who've been super marginalized and now it's a way of saying like take me seriously in your professional world so it gets really complicated yeah and that was definitely my experience was that i was like it was this so i've never worked outside of peer support i've never worked in like a quote-unquote professional white collar job um, I was working at a fast food restaurant on Friday and then on Monday I was working for a social service organization. And so like coming up through that in this field, that was my, like exactly what you said. It was my chance to be like, look, I also have letters. Look, take me seriously. Look, I have some, some sort of credential that you guys place value on. And so now to be in a place where I'm like, I don't really need it anymore. Um, it just, it's like an interesting growth and expansion. Um, but yeah, I would love to see the workforce continuing to really re-examine like, what do we mean when we say professional? How is that tied to the development of our careers? What can we be doing that's different? Um, and I am so happy that I got the chance to work with you on this project and have you be the one facilitating that session. I think you brought a lot of great value um, to this series. And so I just want to say thank you. Um, and just ask if there's any kind of final thoughts that you wanted to share before we wrap up. No, I, I really appreciated you inviting me. Like I said, that first email was a surprise until I read further down. <laughs> But I'm I'm glad that you asked me to be thinking about this in this really, really conscious sort of way, because it is such an important conversation that I've had pieces of in all sorts of different places. And I got to bring those pieces into a, a fuller, more thought out sort of presentation and offer to other people to be a part of that conversation, too. So thank you for that. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, I appreciate your time. And uh I'm excited for the next time we get to collaborate. Okay, me too. Thank you. Thank you for connecting with us, listeners. Our goal in sharing stories and information is to provide hope and resources to the field of peer recovery. Please join us again next month on Recovery Talk. 
You can find our episodes on our website, peerrecoverynow.org. That's peerrecoverynow.org or wherever you find your podcasts. The Peer Recovery Center of Excellence is funded by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration to enhance peer recovery support services by expanding access to training and technical assistance services across the country. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the Department of Health and Human Services, nor does mention of trade names, commercial practices, or organizations imply endorsement by the U.S. government. Talk with you next time.